In 2023, we asked, what happened to the Everglades restoration we were promised? Who are the Palestinians? And why is Joe Biden losing more Latinos in Florida? Welcome to the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host, Tim Padgett. In the next hour, we'll close out 2023 by looking at how tough the year was for South Florida's most critical commodity, the environment. And that includes the Everglades, whose revival feels dangerously dormant. We'll also examine the face and the future of the Palestinians, both in Gaza and here, amid the brutal Israel-Hamas war. And we'll discuss new polls that suggest President Biden and the Democrats are in more trouble with Latino voters next year than they thought. All that coming up right after the news. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, bienvindo. With temperatures in the 70s most of this month, it's easy to forget just how flipping hot we were six months ago. My mother-in-law visited in July, and she couldn't believe how oppressively sweltering it was in Miami compared to her home in tropical Venezuela. But such is the new normal here under climate change, and this year it waged a deadly assault on one of South Florida's most vital natural commodities, our 350-mile-long coral reef, which suffered catastrophic bleaching. But global warming wasn't our only ecological threat. Politicians did their share, depending on whether or not you agree with their efforts to expand Miami-Dade County's Urban Development Boundary, or UDB, which has opened the door to a slew of development proposals that could further endanger our other vital natural commodity, the Everglades. And speaking of the Everglades, this year it became clearer than ever that state and federal promises made more than a quarter century ago to restore the River of Grass are going unfulfilled. Joining me now to look back and ahead on this is WLRN's environment editor, Jenny Stiletovitz. She recently debuted a landmark podcast on the Everglades' peril called Bright Lit Place. Jenny, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Let's start with your Everglades podcast, Bright Lit Place. The last time we talked about it on this program, we looked at the failure so far to clean and store enough of the water that's been polluted by sugar farming a project that is vital to Everglades restoration. What are your new episodes looking at now? So we went on to look at science versus politics, the conflict between the two, how a project restoration effort that is driven by science often gets influenced by politics. Um, that episode, we looked at this ongoing court battle between the Everglades Foundation and its former chief scientists and the role that this Everglades Reservoir that we've talked about before mm -hmm. uh, played in this legal fight. We also looked at the science itself. We went down Shark River and went into the Sawgrass Marshes with a couple of scientists to look at the kind of work they've been doing over decades, um, essentially building the case for why Everglades restoration and saving the Everglades is vital to South Florida. And then in the last episode, we took a closer look at politics and the politics of climate change. Yeah, I was particularly impressed by the episode that really takes us into that conundrum between the demands of science and the demands of political compromise. You really, really illuminated that dilemma. How hard was it to convey those two demanding tensions in this right. whole fight? 
Right, because it's sort of a n- very nuanced thing when yeah. you're just trying to lay out these two sides. I, for me, this lawsuit between the foundation and the chief scientists sort of boiled it down to its essence, where you had a longtime scientist, highly regarded, um, who refuses to get behind a project because he says the data and the modeling that he's seen shows him that it won't work as planned. But then on the other hand, you have the, the political strategist saying, we need to keep the ball rolling. We need to keep advancing Everglades restoration and to do this we need to make these compromises because this is what lawmakers will approve but lawmakers are disregarding the science it's a it's it it, and to me as a science reporter Mm -hmm. it's a it's a difficult thing to report but it's also a difficult thing to understand right but but your your podcast does help people understand that tension between science and politics that we've really got to pay more attention to uh, in, in, in this whole this whole effort. But is there any likely good news about Everglades restoration coming down the pike in 2024 that you can share with us? Well, so there are a lot of projects that are in planning now that we did not include in the podcast because we just wanted to look at progress and what's been done. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there's good news, it's that the, the planning efforts going on now are including um, a better calculation of climate change, better uh, assessment of what those impacts are are going to be to try and make these projects uh, <laughs> more enduring. Yeah, that's interesting. How how can climate change affect the Everglades? I and mean, we often talk about how climate change and global warming are affecting the seas, but not so much how climate change is affecting the river of grass. What, what are some of the specific ways that they're finding that climate change is making Everglades restoration even harder? Right. So this is a rain-driven system. Half the water in the Everglades comes from rain. Right. So if we're getting more or less rain, rainfall, Mm -hmm. if temperatures are higher, so there's more evaporation of water, that's going to change how much water is delivered. There's saltwater intrusion as sea levels rise. Mm -hmm. Um, That saltwater pushes inland um, into these freshwater marshes that are essentially protecting our drinking water. (laughs) It's a huge climate change project. Yeah, no, no, no. (laughs) And and I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up. And that brings us to the fact that scientists wish they'd had that kind of climate change projection mechanism, let's say, in place for our coral reef, right? I mean, you mentioned to me earlier that scientists felt blindsided by what global warming did to the reef this year. Right. I mean, and that's what they're saying about restoration is we need to have better projections so we're not caught off guard like we were with this ocean heat wave that hit over the summer and white, you know, bleached coral across the Florida Keys, uh, 90% of coral in the Keys and then the shallow coral in Miami-Dade County. This is catastrophic to a reef system that protects us from hurricane storm surge. It's a major barrier of defense for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and the struggles to keep Keep the reef going and improve it and alive. I've been going on for as long as I've been covering the environment. And, and, and that keeps our fish stock it's, uh, yeah, it's, alive. It's, it's, and it's, yeah. So many, so many things that the reef is important for. Marine fish. life. Yeah, yeah. But that really kind of shows just how dramatic the heat wave effect was on coral and the whole marine environment this year, no? Yes, yes, yes. I was talking to Ben Kurtman at the University of Miami, and he said it was like a one in 500,000 year event. Like, 
he was part of the United wow. Nations climate panel that looks at projections. And they had warned in, in their last report that these ocean heat waves would become more commonplace. But I don't think that they expected an ocean heat wave to raise the average temperature of the water five degrees. Yeah. I mean, that is, and, mm-hmm. and remember, water hangs on to heat. Like it takes a while to, mm-hmm. to cool down after something like that rolls Good through. Good point, yeah. Good point. But I know there is some good news for the reef going forward when it comes to replacing coral that's been wrecked by conditions like bleaching, no? Right, right. So so when that happened, um, there was an all-hands-on-deck effort to go out and kind of rescue coral off not just the reef, but the nurseries where they've been breeding coral to be more resilient to hotter ocean temperatures. Right, on these what they call Christmas trees yeah, that, they've, the, the, that they've established down they've there. They've got right? them off Key Biscayne. They're mm-hmm. all down in the Keys, the Florida Aquarium, and UM, Moat, I think. They all have them. So, so they pulled in a lot of those 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 coral that normally spawn in the summer. Mm-hmm. They knew the summer spawning event was coming up. So they were able to collect the spawn, which is fairly new technology that's been developed in the last five years. The Florida Aquarium mm-hmm. went over to London where it was created, yes. learned the technique, brought it back here. So they collected that spawn. Those those That spawn, then they fertilized in the lab. And now mm-hmm. I just checked with Andrew Baker at UM, and they are raising recruits. They've got baby coral that wow. are going to be more that come from these more resilient um, coral that they were raising. And as you and I laughed about a few months ago in this program, with a little help from some romantic Barry White music, right? (laughs) Right, right. Well, can you explain to us how that works scientifically? I don't think it was a science. (laughs) It wasn't so much science. (laughs) I think just everybody, everything loves Barry White. (laughs) (laughs) Even coral. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Now, since global warming is at the heart of this problem, are you heartened? by what happened this month at the UN Climate Change Conference, or COP28, in Dubai, where it looks as though countries finally agreed to reduce the fossil fuel use that releases the carbon and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere that's causing global temperatures to rise? Well, I just wish it hadn't taken 30 years to get here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They've been meeting for 30 years, and they finally agreed that that fossil fuels are, are driving planet warming. They've they've tried to they set a cap of 2050 to stop adding emissions to the to the atmosphere, but it's not an, enough. I mean, we already know that we're going to pass that 1.5 degree temperature threshold that we were trying to avoid, and those impacts, which will likely include these kinds of ocean heat waves. You know, we got to pr- prepare for that. And and I was just reading something that said, you know, we sort of normalized the changes that years ago mm-hmm. we were trying to avoid, and now we're like, okay, well, they're here, and now we're going to have to come to terms with it. We need to sort of like stop normalizing climate yeah. change as inevitable and remember that there are steps that we can take. This is something we cannot allow ourselves to get inured to. Yeah. Right. Now, have Florida politicians like our Republican senators Marco Rubio and Rick Scott, two guys who not so long ago denied that climate change was even a problem and certainly not a man-made problem, have they perhaps evolved now when it comes to reducing fossil fuel usage and increasing renewable energy? Well, they've so they've sort of split the argument in two. So essentially, there there's climate change, and then there's what's causing climate change. And they have evolved and said, yes, the climate is changing, and we need to. We should, we're, the state now, Governor DeSantis, is spending millions and millions of dollars everywhere. We're spending millions to become more resilient, to improve infrastructure. But on the cause and effect, there is still resistance. They're switching over to renewable energy. Um, 
is there's still obstacles. I mean, there's a, a path forward. You still see it come down to a political fight. You see Republicans criticizing Democrats over, you know, initiatives yeah. because it's all well, again, that, 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 that tension between science politics, just like with Everglades restoration. Right. Then, This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. We're talking about the rough year this was for South Florida's environment, including the Everglades, which is the subject of a new WLRN podcast, Bright Lit Place. Jenny, let's pivot back to the Everglades and another threat to its future health, the encroachment of development out on its eastern fringe as our South Florida governments keep trying to push the development boundary further west. Where do things stand with the Miami-Dade County Commission's new efforts to expand the urban development boundary, or UDB, and environmentalist efforts to block that? So ongoing pressure. Um, the the there's applications now in the pipeline that are that are going to try and push the boundary again. There are efforts to ease the way those applications go through uh, the pipeline, um, which makes it harder for for environmentalists environmentalists and conservationists to fight. You may remember that last year a law was passed that put um, anybody who challenged land use plans yeah. on the hook for, for attorney fees. For attorney fees, yeah. And conservationists say, you know, that is going to make it... That'll have quite a chilling effect. Yeah. Yes, yes, very hard on to fight. challenging these kinds of government initiatives to, you know, push things like the UDB back. But in the meantime, we've got a torrent of residential and business development proposals for an expanded UDB waiting on the tarmac to take off, essentially, right? I think any encroachment, any movement of that boundary is is a problem because not just to protect farmland, but it really, as Everglades restoration progresses, every inch of open land is is mm -hmm. crucial. Once land is developed, it's it's easier to restore and convert farmland than it is rooftops. I mean, mm -hmm. if you talk to anybody on either side of the the, the the fight they'll they'll say you know green grass is better than rooftops i mean it just right. you, it's and so important battle. to the restoration because every inch of land you know west of of that boundary as you said is land that can be used to store that water that is so essential to to the everglades restoration purpose no right and it's it's this so much of our water is polluted now so it's not just storing it it's getting it clean and remember we're at the we're at the bottom end of the watershed so everything that happens above us runs down to us quite often when you have restoration efforts they they restore the the, the headwaters okay it's easier to you know keep the water clean, then clean it once it's polluted. Mm -hmm. But we haven't done that. So now we're down here at this receiving end. Right. Um, and we're also at the point where impacts from saltwater intrusion and seawater are are the worst and, and restoration could help fight those. So, But it's not just Miami-Dade County where this sort of thing is a preoccupation. Uh, Palm Beach County also had to deal with the question of whether to allow development on its agricultural reserve out by the Everglades but they blocked that initiative, right? They did. They did. There was a developer who wanted to swap land that, that they owned in the acreage for land that was in the ag reserve. Um, it's funny that the ag reserve makes it sound like it's just protecting farmland, mm -hmm. but a lot of the restoration effort is happening in Palm Beach County where they have yeah. are planting reservoirs and stormwater treatment areas, um, which are m major critical foundational 
yeah. pieces of the Everglades restoration puzzle. This is an entire South Florida project, not just Miami-Dade County, obviously. What about our other climate change-related struggles here, Jenny, especially hurricane and sea level rise mitigation and resiliency? Earlier this year, the state of Florida delivered about $180 million to South Florida for improved infrastructure in that regard. And Miami-Dade County's crucial seawall project finally seems to be back on track, no? Yeah. I mean, they, 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 they needed money to get that going. They are they, between the seawalls and the pumps. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're fighting vigorously to keep the water out. Mm-hmm. Now, finally, Jenny, how do things look for 2024 when it comes to all these South Florida environmental challenges we faced in 2023? Are you optimistic or pessimistic about our ability and, frankly, our will to make things better moving forward? I mean, my concern is that, you know, we are still not really addressing the causes. I mean, we're looking at the effects of what happens mm-hmm. when we don't protect our environment and, and be careful and thoughtful of how we plan our growth. Um, you know, we are still just growing and building. Um, there's more effort to build within the urban area to add mm-hmm. more housing. But then you think about what are the, you know, the, the, the after effects of continuing to add more and more and more people. Um, The Keys right now is considering lifting their building cap Mm -hmm. um, and increasing the number of of houses down there on a skinny little island with essentially two roads in and out, really one main highway all the way down. Florida, in a sense, we have a lot of highways, but we still have one way in and out, you know? So so I I worry about that continued um, reliance on our main industry, which is growth. There's the vital tension, growth versus the environment. Jenny Stiletovich is WLRN's environment editor. Jenny, thanks as always, and Happy New Year. Thank you. You too. Still to come, what we do and don't know, but need to know, about the Palestinians amid the tragedy in Israel. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Shortly after the Israel-Hamas war broke out in October, we were fortunate to have Eileen Prusher on this program. The former Mideast correspondent and Florida Atlantic University journalism professor greatly helped us understand the dynamic in Gaza and Israel that led to the conflict. Eileen's analysis was especially valuable because even though she's Jewish, she made a real effort to understand the Palestinians in Gaza. And that's why we're fortunate to have Mohammed Gumrawi with us today. He's a director of the Jaffer Center for Muslim World Studies at Florida International University. Mohammed is a Palestinian-American, but he also strives to understand the Jewish reality. He sits on the board of the Jerusalem Peace Institute. Mohammed Gumrawi joins me now to help us better understand who the Palestinians are, not just in Gaza, but here in our own South Florida community, and what their future might look like in the aftermath of the brutal Gaza conflict. Mohammed, thanks for talking with us. Hi, Tim. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. When I started my conversation with Eileen back in October, I cited the more than a thousand Israeli civilians murdered by Hamas terrorists. I don't think we can start this conversation without first recognizing the almost 20,000 Palestinians killed in Israel's counteroffensive in Gaza, 70% of them women and children, according to health officials there. 
Mohammed, what have people in Gaza told you about the conditions there three months after the conflict started, which even President Biden has decried? Yes, well, I think we're starting to finally see a reaction in terms of how this conflict uh, is being analyzed by the administration here in the United States. And as you mentioned, um, President Biden's recent comments, um, even referring to indiscriminate bombing and trying to protect civilian life. But as we enter three months into this conflict, we're really starting to see the the long-term impact that's taken place in Gaza and what the civilians in Gaza are going to have to deal with. I mean, ultimately, we have seen that nowhere is safe in Gaza. Almost the entire population, I mean, close to 80% has been displaced from their homes. And if they're able to survive the Israeli bombardment in Gaza, they have many other issues that they now have to start worrying about. Um, One of the first is starvation. Aid, it's been very difficult to get aid into the the Gaza Strip. Um, You're seeing families all unable to get food. And if they are able to uh, to get food, it's it's very minimal. Um, I have friends currently in Gaza, um, some journalists. Um, communication is sparse. Uh, most of the time, I'll see what they're able to just um, get up online. Uh, I think the other big issue that we're currently seeing with um, what's happening in Gaza is is the spread of disease. Right. Um, almost all critical infrastructure in Gaza has been destroyed. So you're you know you have sewage, dirty water. So you have now children with diarrhea. Diseases are spreading. You have a healthcare system that's overwhelmed at this point. Mm-hmm. So I think all of these things are really compounding the difficulties that the Gazans are going to continue to be faced with, even if the bombardment stops. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about your own family history as a Palestinian? Your family hails not from Gaza, but from the West Bank near Ramallah. When did they come to the United States and, and, and what brought them here? So as you mentioned, my family, uh, my mother was born actually in Albira Ramallah, a small city on the outskirts of Ramallah. And uh, my family actually uh, became part of the Palestinian diaspora and left the West Bank um, during the War of 1967, when Israel occupied the West Bank, Gaza, Golan Heights, um, and East Jerusalem. Now, one of the things we should point out here early on is that many Palestinians are Christians, not just Muslims. So we're really talking not just about a religious group. We're talking about a national, historical and cultural group. Why is that important for people to remember when they're considering the Palestinian issue? Yeah, you know, I think that's very important. And in fact, it's um, it's something I have realized a very few Americans are knowledgeable on. I take students to the Middle East, and um, one of the things that they see when we travel to Bethlehem is a a priest uh, that speaks Arabic. Um, They never imagined that they would see a Christian speaking Arabic. And so this community, um, especially with Muslims and Christians in in Palestine, you know, they don't really see themselves as separated. In fact, they all see themselves as Palestinians. They all unite around that identity. Now, it's been more than 75 years since the nation of Israel was established, and the U.S. and much of the rest of the world agree by now that it has a right to exist and to defend itself. The problem comes, of course, when we change the subject to Israel's treatment of the Palestinians who historically got caught in the formation of Israel. So explain why it's so important for the Palestinians to also have their own nation. Absolutely. Um, So yes, during the creation of Israel in 1948, you had what uh, Palestinians referred to as the Nakba or the catastrophe in Arabic. 
And this is when uh, nearly 750,000 Palestinians uh, were displaced from their homes. Uh, many of them went to refugee camps in Lebanon and the West Bank and Gaza and Egypt and Jordan, Jordan and throughout. Right. And then um, the Six Day War in 1967 that led to the occupation of the West Bank, Gaza, East Jerusalem and other parts of the region. You really see the situation for the Palestinians uh, dwindling. Um, it's important to note, and, and I think this is one of the frameworks that's uh, completely ignored when we talk about this conflict here in the United States. Um, ultimately, there has to be a recognition that Israel is an occupying power. It is occupying the West Bank, Gaza Strip, um, and it is, it is subjecting Palestinians to really harsh conditions. And so when I hear uh, U.S. politicians, Israeli politicians talk about the need for Israel to maintain security, um, to be able to provide a safe state for Jews to live, um, I think they completely ignore the, the security situation of, of Palestinians. Okay. You know, I'd argue that Palestinian and Israeli security is intrinsically linked in order for Israelis to have security, Palestinians need security. Okay. But that brings us to the issue of Hamas, the Palestinian militant group that rules the Gaza Strip but has been designated a terrorist group, especially after its terrorist attack on Israeli civilians on October 7th that started the war we're witnessing now. Many, if not most, Palestinians in Gaza consider Hamas a dictatorship, from what we read, that does not represent their values. But the Palestinian Authority that governs the West Bank is largely considered a weak and ineffective entity. Again, we can and should debate the Israeli leadership's often unjust treatment of Palestinians. But why haven't the Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank been able to realize better leadership of their own? Right. Um, so this is a great question. Um, in 2006, there were legislative elections in Palestine. Um, Hamas won those elections. There was a short civil war between the Palestinian Authority uh, and Hamas, and it resulted in Hamas governing the Gaza Strip and the Palestinian Authority governing the West Bank. Right. There hasn't been elections in, in Palestine since. And in fact, just a few years ago, uh, Mahmoud Abbas was trying to garner support and hold new elections. Abbas being the leader of the Palestinian Authority. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. Mm -hmm. And so these elections never took place. Palestinians need to elect new leaders. But this becomes increasingly difficult with the occupation hanging overhead. So ultimately, in, in order to really elect true good leadership for Palestinians, the occupation by Israel needs to end. A Palestinian state needs to be created to hopefully lead the Palestinians in a new direction. Especially this new generation of young Palestinians today, they see no hopeful future for them. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. We're talking about the Palestinians, who they are, and what their future might be in the aftermath of the Israel-Hamas war. Mohammed, let's, let's shift to the Palestinian diaspora here in America that you're part of. How large is that population here in the U.S., and how long have they been established here? What, what, what should we know about its contribution to the country? Yes, there is a sizable Palestinian diaspora, um, specifically here in the United States. So there is a significant Palestinian population here in South Florida, uh, a majority of which actually live in Broward County. But when we talk about the, the larger Palestinian diaspora in the United States, um, you know, the 
there's there's large populations in, in cities like Chicago and then, of course, in Michigan and places like right. Detroit. You know, Palestinians had started migrating to the United States really early in the, the, the 20th century, um, but more so after 1948. And then we saw another surge in 1967. Right. You know, the Palestinian diaspora has really been part of the American fabric for decades now. You know, notably people like Bella and Gigi Hadid, famous supermodels. But I just want to say the average Palestinian American is just that. They are the average American. Doctors, lawyers, teachers, police officers, firefighters. Right. Now, a lot of my Muslim friends complain, and rightly so, that every time an atrocity is committed somewhere by a Muslim terrorist, society here demands that the Arab diaspora publicly renounce it or else be tagged as guilty by association. That is, of course, an unfair double standard. Do Palestinians here feel the same thing has happened now, that they're being unfairly associated with Hamas in that regard? Oh, absolutely. I think especially after the October 7th um, attacks and some of the rhetoric that we saw coming from, from politicians um, as, here in the United States specifically. Um, mm. There seems to be this conflation that all Palestinians are Hamas. Um, and even just the imagery of, of, of the discourse here in the United States that you know, Palestinian men uh, uh, tend to be terrorists. Uh, so you know, these, are, these are very unfair double standards. Um, you know, uh, and I think one of the biggest issues here in the United States, especially among the Palestinian diaspora, uh, is there seems to be this hierarchy on the value of, of life when it comes to these conflicts and, and when we see violence break out in the region. Uh, and I think that this is a sentiment that sits with many uh, Palestinian Americans here in the United States. They just don't feel like their lives are seen as, as valuable um, as others. Right. Now, in, in my reporting on the large and influential Arab diaspora in Latin America, many Palestinians there told me they were frustrated by leftist political leaders who hijacked their cause by also supporting Hamas. Has it also been frustrating for Palestinians here in the U.S. to see protesters like radical college students too often give people the erroneous impression that being pro-Palestinian also means being pro-Hamas? Yeah, I think that's a, an unfair categorization um, of, of what's truly happening. Mm -hmm. um, I think what we're seeing is an increase in um, the knowledge regarding this conflict. We're seeing young people who have uh, you know, grown up and are starting to ask the, the tough questions. You know, why is this, is this conflict um, so longstanding? Why has this conflict continued? Um, and look, you know, universities historically have been hubs for this kind of um, dissent, this kind of challenging the status quo. I mean, I think that that is what makes universities unique. In a yeah, sense. and I, I want to uh, make sure that people know I, I'm not tagging every college student who is out there protesting for the Palestinian cause as being pro Hamas by any means. Right. But unfortunately, in, in some of the mainstream media and comments that we've seen from political leaders and other groups, um, they have they have tried to make that distinction. Um, and so I think that, uh, you know, college students are, are trying to figure out, you know, how can they show uh, solidarity with Palestine, um, but not be accused of being pro Hamas. And I think the you know, many of these protests and if you look at the language by mainstream media, 
Um, and, you know, it's very implicit, but it's there. You'll see, you know, categorizations of these protests as anti-Israel protests or pro-Hamas protests. Mm -hmm. And that just, in fact, is not the case. These are these are protests to show support um, for Palestinians. And that support for Palestinians is specifically for their right to freedom, self-determination, and an end to the occupation. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with being pro-Hamas. It has nothing to do with being anti-Israel. These protests are in support of Palestinian freedom, Palestinian self-determination, and the right for Palestinians to be able to govern themselves. Mm -hmm. Finally, Mohammed, as a Palestinian, do you see something positive coming out of this nightmarish conflict, perhaps? more resolved to create the two-state solution we've been talking about? Yeah, um, you know, it's very hard um, to try to look at the silver lining um, when we see such a massive destruction um, going on in the region. And I think um, uh, the, the, the years that it's going to take Gaza to, to rebuild. Um, but if I am looking at a silver lining or, or trying to find that silver lining, I think that, you know, it would be that um, this serve as a wake-up call that it serve as a wake-up call that the status quo in Israel and Palestine is unsustainable. And that eventually, um, ultimately, both sides need to come together um, and both sides need to work on finding a solution. And that solution has to include um, Palestinian self-determination and the creation of a Palestinian state and an end to this occupation. I think once those things happen, um, we can start working towards building a, a true and lasting peace. Um, and so if there is ever any silver lining, I hope it's that this revitalizes the peace process um, and it, re, it, it revitalizes the, the urge or, or need to show or highlight um, that a Palestinian state needs to be created. And only until there's an end to this occupation and the creation of a Palestinian state, uh, I don't think we're going to see... Um, an end to this cyclical violence anytime in the near future. Muhammad Gumrawi is the assistant director of the Jeffers Center for Muslim World Studies at Florida International University, and he sits on the board of the Jerusalem Peace Institute. Muhammad, thanks very much and Happy New Year. Thank you, Tim. Still to come, are President Biden and the Democrats losing even more Latino voters, both inside and outside Florida? This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. It's no secret that the Latino vote matters a lot here in Florida and especially South Florida. And it's no secret that in recent years, the Democratic Party has been losing Latino voters in Florida and South Florida and even outside Florida. But that trend appears to be getting worse for the Democrats than they thought. President Joe Biden did win Florida's Latino vote in 2020, but former President Donald Trump nonetheless captured 46 percent of that block, up from the 35 percent he got in 2016. Now, according to a poll last month, Trump would defeat Biden among Latino voters in Florida. Biden won 67 percent of the national Latino vote in 2020, but a poll released this month by Florida International University shows his support among Latinos nationally has dropped to just 53 percent. How will all of this play out in the 2024 election? And how important will the Latino vote turn out to be both in Florida and around the country? 
Joining me now to help forecast that is Eduardo Gamara. He teaches political science at Florida International University, where he's also director of the Latino Public Opinion Forum. Eduardo, great to have you with us again. Thank you, Tim. Pleasure to be with you. Let's start here in Florida with the first of those two new surveys of Latino voters I just mentioned. It was conducted by Unidos U.S. and Mi Familia Bota, two Latino nonprofits, and it shows Florida Latinos voting for Trump over Biden. Not by a majority, 45 percent to 39 percent, but nevertheless, you've naturally got to ask, have Biden and the Democrats simply written Florida off as a hopelessly red peninsula that's not worth their efforts anymore, even with a historically Democratic constituency like Latinos? You know, Tim, that's a question that is often asked, and I think it's uh, it's often asked even within Democratic circles. Uh, I've often told uh, Florida Democrats that uh, there were three things that they haven't done historically. One was to stop taking uh, Latino Democrats for granted. For granted, yeah. Second, to to get better candidates, and and third, to to do a little bit more research on on Hispanics in this state and. Uh, uh, those are the three things that the Republicans have been doing consistently for at least the better part of the last two decades. Yeah. And so that hard work has paid off, it seems to me, for the Republicans. And and, and the lack of attention has, has not paid off, certainly, for the Democrats. And is a lot of the Democrats' attitude about Florida and Florida's Latinos influenced by the fact that in 2020, Biden won traditionally Democratic Miami-Dade County by only seven points when Democrat Hillary Clinton won it by 30 points in 2016. And and the fact that Biden's lame performance was largely a result of Trump doing so well with the county's Latinos. Yeah, and I think there's a, a few ways of, of looking at this. One is to say that the messaging that the Republicans engaged in worked. In other words, uh, the emphasis on labeling any Democratic candidate as a communist yeah. um, worked. But I think that that's kind of a rather simple explanation. The reality is that the that the Republicans fielded better candidates and uh, were much more engaged with, uh, with the different groups here in the community than Democrats. And then there are things that the Democrats can't control. For example, the deepening authoritarianism in Nicaragua, in Venezuela, and in Cuba. Right. And they also couldn't control what Washington was doing with regard to foreign policy. But that anger that Latinos like Cubans and Venezuelans feel about anything liberal as a result of that socialista dictatorship situation worsening in Latin America, is there anything the Democrats can do about that in Florida? Well, again, it it goes back to the idea that they need to understand how this community and Latinos in Florida feel, which makes them significantly different than than those elsewhere, as our as our survey demonstrates. Yeah. Number one, for example, you can't campaign in Miami on a progressive uh, uh, agenda, right? Just right. the very term progressive. Progressista. You should not use that word in South Florida, right? Many many people find it offensive. And then secondly, I think, you know, that um, and in fact, we found this in a survey on Venezuelans not long ago, that there are two things that appear to be very important to Latino voters in in Miami-Dade in particular. One, what's happening back home. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, and especially as authoritarianism, you know, continues to deepen. And secondly, what U.S. policy is and the perception of at least the Biden administration's policy toward Cuba or toward Venezuela 
is not a very good one. They they believe that, in fact, uh, uh, you know, for example, the whole issue of lifting of sanctions and and uh, and uh, being soft on on things like the ELN and and the FARC in in Colombia, right? Those things Marx, resonate. Marxist Marxist guerrilla groups. We should point out, yeah. Right. And those things resonate very negatively here locally. Yeah. But at the same time, a lot of Democrats ask, how in the world could Latinos support a guy like Trump who demonizes Latino immigrants? In fact, he just said they were poisoning America's blood and who calls Latino and Caribbean nations expletive whole countries and so on. Some columnists here have suggested it's because deep down Latinos historically admire authoritarian caudillos or or strongmen. Others suggest it's because, as you pointed out earlier, Democrats have simply taken Latinos for granted and are doing a lousy on the ground job of engaging them, especially in the run up to elections. What do you think is is driving Latino voters in Florida and especially South Florida more and more to Trump? Three things, Tim. Um, One, our survey uh, reveals something interesting that in an open question on what is the gravest problem facing the United States, uh, Latinos nationwide are pointing to immigration and border right. control. I was going to get to that, that when we discussed <laughs> your survey. Yeah, that is very, very striking. And uh, and then secondly, you know, you, you all you have to go back to is November 9th and see that, you know, the Republican candidates and their debate and then Trump and Hialeah were basically saying that they're going to have the most massive roundup and deportation of undocumented immigrants. And they were saying this to Latino crowds who were who are clapping for them. And this, this of course, sociologists have long studied, which is this idea, right, that, you know, uh, will the last one in the boat please pull up the ladder, right? Yeah. There is now a perception by many, many Latin Americans, immigrants who, are, who have been here for more than a decade, that, uh, that the, the boat is full and that those who are arriving are not as good as them. And so, therefore, it's it's okay to pull up the ladder and to, in fact, side with those who are trying to to exclude them. And then and then I think, finally, the, the whole notion of the caudillo is interesting, Tim. You may recall that the Democrats tried to label uh, Trump as a caudillo uh, and, and basically in a negative sense. What they didn't realize is that Caudillo has a positive connotation, yeah. and so it actually backfired because many in this community look at Trump as El Cid, right? El Caudillo, the guy who's going to solve everything and is going to bring you know, the United States to, uh, to a new future. Even, even though the Democrats in that campaign were trying to connect Trump not with really right-wing Caudillos so much as left-wing Caudillos <laughs> like Hugo Chavez and that ilk in Latin America. Correct. And Correct. It, and it's still it entirely backfired. backfired. Yes. <laughs> this is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. We're talking about the Latino vote and how President Biden and the Democrats look poised to lose more of it in 2024. So, Eduardo, let's pivot beyond Florida to the national scene. And that brings us to the new poll that Florida International University released this month, uh, which we've mentioned here earlier. It was conducted by your Latino Public Opinion Forum, as well as FIU's Gordon Center for Public Policy and the Adam Smith Center for Economic Freedom. Again, it shows Biden's support among Latinos nationally plunging 14 points since 2020. And in this case, we're not talking about conservative anti-socialista Cubans, for example. We're talking about Latinos such as more moderate and liberal Mexican-Americans. How can Biden be losing so many of them? 
That's an interesting dichotomy, Tim, because uh, the, the survey also reveals something quite interesting. Latinos are still overwhelmingly Democrats, even though it's dropped. When you ask them which party best represents your values, overwhelmingly it's the Democratic Party. Which party better handles uh, policy issues, immigration, education, uh, et cetera? It's, it's the, the Democrats. And this coincides with other surveys, Pew's surveys and so on. But where there appears to be a, an enormous divorce is with the question of leadership. And that's where President Biden in particular gets some terrible marks. And, uh, and it's hard to say because the survey didn't really ask this question. But it seems that, you know, there is this incredible divorce with uh, with the, the leadership of both parties and Latinos. 57% do not want Trump to be the candidate. And, you know, 45% do not want uh, Biden to be the candidate. So, mm -hmm. so neither party gets off on this. And it reflects this crisis of leadership. Is it an age thing? For example, we always talk about how young, relatively, the Latino population in the United States is. Is the, the fact that Biden's an octogenarian and Trump is 77, is that spooking Latino voters, particularly younger ones, to, to a certain extent? Yeah, although it's reading into the, the survey since it didn't ask that specific question, but other surveys have. And ageism is clearly an issue. The, the perception of Biden is that he's weak, he's old. You know, and yeah. uh, and even though uh, Trump is also old, uh, he appears to give this perception, you know, this image that he is that he's stronger, that he's more co more coherent, and everything else. Right. And so, you know, it seems more importantly, though, uh, Tim, uh, I think what we're we're going through is this enormous divorce between institutions and the Latino community. That uh, that creates this enormous gap that will have consequences in 2024, because a shift of two to four percent in in the swing states, uh, where in fact where this poll was conducted, could signify a, a victory for Donald Trump. But Eduardo, what's at the heart of that divorce when when we're talking about Latinos as as say perhaps opposed to white or black or Asian voters? What's at the heart of their particular alienation from the leadership of these 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 two parties in our country? Again, I think it goes to what we were saying earlier about Florida. You know, not Florida is not the rest of the United States by any means. But I think it is this perception that that the that especially the Democratic Party has abandoned Latinos, that uh, that it's not paying attention specifically to their needs, mm -hmm. and that most importantly that they're they're not putting forth leaders that connect with the community, mm -hmm. right? I mean, this is something that you know, poll after poll that I've conducted over the last 11 years, Tim, tells me this, that the perception is that that Democrats put forth candidates that have nothing to do with it, with the Latino community. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, they simply expect the Latino community to follow those who were chosen because they're Democrats. In other words, taking the community for granted is not just a Florida phenomenon. It's a national phenomenon. And also, when we're talking about the 21st century and the new generation, not 
understanding that, La- that Latinos are not a monolith. It seems that, the, ironically, that the Republicans have better done a better job of recognizing the great variation of nationalities and cultures inside the Latino cohort. Right. And, and what this survey has done, Tim, is it, it does gauge into the difference between national origin, for example. And, and as you as you pointed out, it's not the same thing to say that Mexicans and and Cubans are, you know, they they may they may share the term Hispanic. For example, on that, even on that alone, there's a key difference. Most in the United States prefer to be called Hispanics. Mm-hmm. A distant second is they they like to be called Latinos, but very few like to be called Latinx. And yet the Democratic Party and its leadership appears bent on calling Hispanics Latinx, right? So that tells you a little bit about the divorce that, that, that we have, right? And then when you go further into the national differences, you can understand how certain groups are feel much more intensely about, about issues like that. For example, Cubans, Colombians, Venezuelans. All right. By the same token, though, your survey, as we pointed out earlier, asked Latinos nationally what they considered their biggest problem. And a fifth of them said inflation and the high cost of living. The point is, Latinos feel alienated from Biden, not just for these reasons particular to them that we've been talking about, but for the key reason non-Latinos feel alienated from Biden, right? I mean, despite the strong economy, they're feeling economic frustration and they're taking it out on him? I think so. And that's that's usually the case, right? No matter who the incumbent is. You know, the United States probably has the best economy in the world today, but it's still not good enough. And Hispanics in particular are severely affected by inflation, by the fact that they are the ones who who depend largely on renting, for example. Bottom line, it's still the nation's largest minority and still a critical swing vote. Absolutely. Right. Eduardo Gomara teaches political science at Florida International University, where he also directs the Latino Public Opinion Forum. Eduardo, many thanks and Happy New Year. To you too, Tim. Thank you very much. Finally on the Roundup, this is what New Year's Eve might sound like in the rest of the country. But here's what it sounds like in the 305, hermano. That's New Year's gaita music played by Venezuelans, like my wife. They've got some of the most chévere or cool traditions for ushering in El Año Nuevo, like carrying around suitcases to symbolize the new journey ahead. Here at WLRN, our digital editor, Mateo Sanchez, says his fellow Brazilians wear all white for good luck. Digital producer Alisa Ramos's Filipino family eats noodles for long life and prosperity. South Florida Roundup producer Helen Acevedo and her Nicaraguan family make sure to eat 12 red grapes at the stroke of midnight and make a wish with each one. Palm Beach County reporter Wilkin Brutus, like the rest of the Haitian community here, enjoys his soup jumu, or pumpkin soup. Whatever your Chevere New Year's tradition is, we hope it helps make your new year a happy one. That will do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Helen Acevedo with help from Polly Landis. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The vice president of radio and the show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Mertz. Richard Ives answers the phones. 
I'm Tim Paget. Have a great weekend and thanks for listening. Happy New Year, Feliz Año, Bon Ane, Feliz Ano Novo. WLRN Public Media.